Seltzer Kings podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextipede, you're alive again. How I've missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, come off it, Gavin. No one wants to bone... Old Reg at the Cock and Burr in Throckmorton. Yes. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you made your main character, who was a burnout, middle-aged old man, into the hot young Tom Cruise, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe. This is episode number 365, the last barman poet edition of the show, where we talk about the Tom Cruise movie even Tom Cruise would like to forget. Cocktail. Stay tuned. The... What the hell are you thinking podcast is brought to you by the Slippery Nipple Bar, the bar that only serves cocktails named for sexual innuendos. Are you tired of boring old shot and beer bars with scruffy fat podcast hosts begging the bartender to extend their tabs? Of course you are. So come on by the Slippery Nipple and enjoy our vast array of naughty named libation like the Angel's Tit, the Red-Headed Slut, the Leg Spreader, the Sex in the Driveway, and our staff's personal favorite, the Come My Panties. Are the drinks over-sugared and undrinkable? Yes. Are they at least somewhat misogynistic? Probably. But will there be a bunch of hot young girls at the bar ordering something called the Dirty Little Virgin? Absolutely. The Slippery Nipple, where you drink when you don't care about taste, but you kind of hope you can get laid. I see America drinking the fabulous cocktails I make. America's getting stinking on something I stir or shake. The sex on the beach, the schnapps made from peach, the velvet hammer, the Alabama slammer. I make things with juice and froth, the pink squirrel, the three-toed sloth. I make drinks so sweet and snazzy, the iced tea, the kamikaze, the orgasm, hands up the merchandise. The death spasm. The Singapore sling, the ding-a-ling. America, you're just devoted to every flavor I've got. But if you want to get loaded, why don't you just order a shot? 
They say the dream of every drunkard is to someday own their own bar. You can't open your own bar. The year I left the military, I was given as a thank you for my service a lump sum of about 30 grand after taxes because I intentionally failed to get promoted to a level where they would let me re-enlist. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, buddy. No, I totally could have gotten that promotion if I wanted to. It was a plan. I, I had a plan. Anyway, when this huge pile of cash hit, I began brainstorming to what I should do with all that money. And the first thing I thought of naturally was... I've always wanted to own my own bar. So I did what anyone would do in that situation, and I went down to my local watering hole, and I went up to the owner, and I said, Hey, I want to open my own bar. And after assuring him that I had no intentions of opening anywhere near his bar, he asked me a few simple questions. The first of which was, how much money do you got? And when I told him I had 30 grand, he laughed for a good five minutes and then told me I needed at least 10 times that amount to even think about opening a bar. And this was in 1998 in a shithole town. Now, I didn't have $300,000. Big surprise there. Nor did I have any of the other things that Dale, the owner of that said bar, told me that I would need to open and run my bar, like a fucking clue how to run a business, or enough brain cells between my ears to keep my books balanced based on the sheer size of my bar tab alone. Speaking of which, since you've got 30 grand, you're going to pay that right now. Then he told me about how getting a liquor license is pretty much meant bribing someone if I didn't want to spend about three years on a waiting list or the massive amount of insurance that I would need to keep the bar open and running because drunk idiots like myself kept doing stupid shit and breaking stuff. And finally, when you owned your own bar, that didn't mean you got to drink for free every night because you would be so busy and tired, you didn't have the time or energy to drink at all. And after he told me all of this, I decided pretty quickly... Wait, that doesn't sound fun. And that I would just move to Belize and open a little bar on the beach and live the life of an expat barman sipping fruity cocktails and banging rich married ladies when they got off cruise ships. Hey, would you think that? I, uh, I I'd watch the movie Cocktail a lot. If you're younger than 40, you've probably never experienced the vapid pleasure of 1988's Cocktail and its attendant horror of a soundtrack. Kids today... If you're over 40, you've probably seen it and thankfully gotten forgotten almost everything about it. The only way you would have an intimate knowledge of the movie is if, say, you were a young man whose only life goal was to someday stand at his own bar and recite his poetry, and therefore you watch this shitty movie more times than you can actually remember. And if you've done that, you can probably recall every detail, so let me do just that. Brian Flanagan, played by Tom Cruise, who was just coming off his breakout year in Top Gun, has just left the army and moved back to his native New York City with dreams of becoming a rich Wall Street banker. It was 1988, folks. He attends an unnamed college in the city. Columbia University? Well, they never say it was because the people at said unnamed university were very mean to young Brian Flanagan, mocking his business plan and dream of opening his own chains of home-style bars. They mock him because he is white, working-class Irish, who, as we all know, were deeply oppressed in this country until at least 1989, the year after this movie premiered. And because the Wasp were mean to him, Brian drops out of not Columbia and gets a full-time job slinging drinks at a Manhattan nightclub. And this is where Brian meets his mentor in the booze game, Doug Coughlin, played by Michael Caine. You sure, dude? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Michael Caine. I mean, it looked just like Michael Caine, sounded like Michael Caine, but I'll, I'll look up, 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 nope, nope, I'm being told that it was actually discount rack Michael Caine, Brian Brown. 
actually love Brian Brown as an actor, but you know that every director who wanted Michael Caine but couldn't afford him just went ahead and casted Brian Brown. Now, Coughlin is a hard-drinking barman who's seen everything in the world twice and wasn't impressed the first time, and he lives by a series of nihilistic aphorisms so dark I actually want them etched on my tombstones called Coughlin's Laws. Coughlin's Law? Douglas Coughlin. Logical negativist. Flourished in the last part of the 20th century. Propounded a set of laws that the world generally ignored. To its detriment. Coughlin teaches young Brian the high sorcery of bartending, meaning how to flip bottles in the air, make a huge max for the barbacks to clean up, and also how to drench the undergarments of every woman watching. Look, folks, I didn't write it. I just watched it a lot in my 20s. The two rise to become the premier bartenders of Manhattan, drawing rock star crowds to see them make drinks and make passes at every woman in the place. The young Brian tells Coughlin of his plan to open a chain of bars across America where everybody knows your name. Welcome to Cheers. And they call it Cocktails and Dreams. Anyway, yada, 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 thinly paced romance, inevitable fight between the two friendship ends, and Brian finds himself tending bar on a beach in the islands a few years later where he meets a nice, rich, white girl played by Elizabeth Shue, and they fall in love. It's dirty dancing. Now, about this time, but who should show up but good old Doug Coughlin, who has married himself a rich woman and is now living the dream. Coughlin lures Brian Ryan into a wager that he can't bag himself a rich cougar like Coughlin did. Brian does, gets caught by his true love who runs off and leaves Brian the fuckboy and the rich chick he bonked that night. Those two go on for a little while, but eventually Brian fucks that up and goes off to find his true love, who is, of course, pregnant with this child and wants nothing to do with him. He goes to Coughlin for more bad advice. They get drunk. Coughlin passes out. His wife, Coughlin, makes a pass at Brian, who finally doesn't stick his dick in the wrong person and goes back to tell Coughlin that he is a changed man and wants to have his true love and all that good shit, only to discover that Coughlin has killed himself, leaving a note saying that he had lost all of his wife's money because Coughlin was a miserable piece of shit, so don't spend your life like him. Brian marries his true love, opens up his cocktails and dreams, and the movie ends with his loving, very pregnant wife watching him orate in a bar, a happy, family-oriented poem about love, responsibility, or some shit like that. I usually stop watching after the first hour or so when the whole romantic arc with Elizabeth Shue starts. The movie is not, uh, it's not, uh, not good. And I haven't even mentioned the songs yet. So I hear you asking, why am I telling you about this utterly forgettable movie? Well, for one thing, it had a huge impact on the young and stupid Dave. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be taking her to the Betty Ford Center in the morning. I mean, come on, Brian Flanagan. He was me, young, working class guy, leaving the military, big dreams, no money, could mix a bean cocktail. Could I flip a bottle and make a great pour? No, indeed, he could not. And was I brash and handsome? Who? Who said that? Well, all the older ladies at the karaoke bar wanted to fuck me. What I'm saying is I identified with said main character. But the other reason I'm telling you about the movie is I've had this super serious schedule sh show schedule for this week about interracial marriage, and I realized that was way too heavy of a topic for a dumb show like this. And finally, the movie cocktail is not what the writer of the book that inspired it, and indeed the screenplay that he wrote for said movie, wanted it to be because it turned out it got Disney-fied. You see, this dude by the name of Haywood wrote the book Cocktail. Haywood, you blow me. No, no, Haywood Gould. A 2019 article in Esquire by Ma Michael Sebastian describes Gould thusly, quote, 
I need to pause for a moment to tell you that Haywood Gould was like a boozy Forrest Gump of pre-Giuliani New York. In the 60s and 70s, he covered the crime beat for the New York Post, served in Vietnam, returned to New York and became a professional poker player, drove a cab, wrote books, articles, TV, and movie scripts. He co-wrote the 1977 movie Rolling Thunder with Paul Schrader, got himself into a serious gambling debt and worked his off as a bartender at the Hotel Diplomats Nightclub in Times Square, all the while writing Cocktail and other books. In 1984, he published Cocktail, which Universal bought. He, then he adapted the novel into a screenplay that Disney acquired from Universal, unquote. The book Cocktail, which I have not read, but I plan to after doing all this research for this episode, is nothing like the movie. Although semi-autobiographical, meaning the stories are true, but the names have been changed basically to protect the guilty, the characters of Brian Flanagan and Doug Coughlin are composites of Gould and many other people he met slinging booze in the 70s in Manhattan. In the book, as quoted in a 2013 article by Nina Metz in the Chicago Tribune, quote, Think older, drunker, scuzzier. A self-described 38-year-old weirdo in a field jacket with greasy, graying hair hanging over his shoulder, his blue eyes streaked with the red sky in morning, who barrels up to the reader early in the first chapter, metaphorical hand extended, the stink of last night's booze still on his breath. Permit me to introduce myself. I'm Brian Flanagan, resort bartender extraordinaire. I wander the watering spots, dealing in anecdote fodder, selling a dab of color to the drab, a bit of wit to the wordless, kindly counselor, stern disciplinarian. Gentle deflorations are a side specialty. A man of many parts, a few of which have loosened over the years, unquote. Now you see that. That's more Doug Coughlin than Brian Flanagan, and truth be told, I found Brian Flanagan fucking annoying, but Coughlin, who was much more ghoul than Brian, was always the guy I kinda wanted to be. You poor sad man. Ghoul said of Flanagan, uh, the book's Flanagan, again from the trib, quote, He was a composite of a lot of people I met, including myself in those days. I was in my late 30s and I was drinking pretty good and I was starting to feel like I was missing the boat. The character in the book is an older guy who's been around and has started to feel that he's pretty washed up, unquote. So Gould writes this delightful dark book. It gets optioned by Universal Studios. And then what usually happens, happened. It languished in their slush pile for a while until someone else came along, read it, and thought, you know what? You can ruin it. And when it comes to ruining good movies to make them more profitable, there's one name that rises above them all. It's Disney. You see, the Disney Corporation had already wrung all the blood from children's entertainment they could to feed the ravening appetite of its unholy and undead masters. So in the early 80s, the all-seeing eye of Walt began to cast upon the world to see what else there was to consume. And the acolytes of the undying ones realized that there was money to be made in adult movies. Like porn? Well, no, I mean... <laughs> I'm sure that Disney has a super secret hardcore porn division, but what I mean in this case is movie for grown-ups. And that's why they created Touchstone Pictures. Touchstone would make movies that adults would enjoy, but with the same banal Caucasian heterosexual homo homogeneity of their children's movies. Riveting. And that is how Gould came to be writing for the House of Mouse. More from Gould in the trip, quote, there must have been 40 drafts of the screenplay before it went into production. It originally with Universal, they put it in turnaround because I wasn't making the character like enough, likable enough, and then Disney picked it up, and I went through the same process with them. 
I would fight them at every turn, and there was a huge battle over making the lead younger, which eventually I did. I realized, and I think I knew all along, that the people who wanted me to make the changes were correct. The movie's characters, characters who were upbeat, who were going to have happy endings and a possible future in their lives. That's what you want from big commercial Hollywood movies. So I tried to walk the thin line between giving them what they wanted and not completely betraying the whole arena of saloons in general. Unquote. The script that went into production lost most of its darkness, and then its place, we got, well, we got bottle tossing and wholesome family values. The bottle tossing shit didn't even exist until the movie. Cool said that they would do a little of it, usually like beer cans or mixers, you know, goofy shit. Well, they did it when they were very drunk. But the whole choreographed dance of bartenders juggling bottles and doing dramatic pours was created whole cloth for the film. There's a very good fucking reason for this. If a drinker, a serious drinker, someone like... Like you? Well, yes, like me, goes up to the bar to order a drink and has to spend 10 minutes watching the fucking bartender slip bottles in the air like a circus act instead of pouring me a goddamn fucking drink. Well, your tip, your tip is just going to crash as hard as all those broken bottles did behind the fucking bar. And the bartenders themselves out in the real world resented the fuck out of that shit. As Ghoul put it, quote, Thanks a lot. Now I've got people coming in and telling me to throw bottles up in here because of this movie. Who needs you? On top of making the drink, now I gotta juggle these fucking bottles and put on a show for them, unquote? And to this very day, this shit has continued in the kinds of bars I would never drink in, even if they did offer me a tab. <laughs> they have actual contests for bartenders who use their acrobatic drink skills. Meanwhile, I'm standing at the fucking bar going, Can I have my fucking drink back, please? The movie, as bad as it was, made Gould a shit ton of money. And in the end, that's what Hollywood is all about. Now, the big factor in the Disneyfication of the movie happened when Tom Cruise was cast as the lead. Gould's rewrite would take the movie from a kind of criticism of Reagan's America into a pay-on of Reagan's America. The movie cameos in the book version of Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho when Patrick Bateman encounters Tom Cruise in an elevator. Cocktail is the movie he compliments the fictional Cruise, although he calls it bartender, and Tom corrects Bateman with the proper title. This scene was, as I said, only in the book because to put it in the movie would have been way, way, way too meta. This is totally meta. All of this wasn't Cruise's fault, but it was because of Cruise. Brian Brown said, Tom Cruise is a very sweet man. He was then in Stelly's, but when he came in, the movie had to change. That's not a bad Brian Brown. The movie that hit screens in July of 88 was not hailed as a critic's darling. The general consensus among the reviewers was... Uh... It stinks. Vincent Canaby said in the New York Times, quote, It is an inane romantic drama that only a very young, very naive bartender could love. How it got that way is difficult to understand, unquote. Roger Ebert panned it with, quote, the more you think about it, what really happens in Cocktail, the more you realize how empty and fabricated it really is, unquote. And Richard Corliss said in time, quote, Cocktail is a bottle of rot gut in a Dom Berignan box, unquote. And Peter Travers said in People, quote, As if realizing that his star hasn't smiled for 15 minutes, Donaldson tacks on a goody-goody ending that would shame the Care Bears. How to sum up what went wrong? Cruz has a line in the movie, Flat Beer, from Rusty Pipes. That was just mean. Which meant that the movie was a huge fucking hit with people who watched movies for fun. 
Cocktail pocketed 11 million on opening weekend, and a week later, it was the number one movie in America, beating out Die Hard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, and Young Guns. Impressive, ah. huh? Oh, very impressive, yes. Cocktail would stay in theaters for 22 weeks and gross 78 million domestically and over 100 million internationally, which is a nice little profit on a 20 million dropped into the production budget. And pretty much every dollar of that 100 million could be chalked up to how much fucking people love Tom Cruise in the late 1980s. Cruise was already a popular actor when he did Cop Top Gun, but after that, everything he touched turned to gold. Americans would pay money to watch him sit on the shitter and read the phone book out loud. After Cocktail, he starred in Rain Man, which, he's netted, which netted Best Picture in 88, then Born on Fourth of July, earning Tom his only Oscar nod for Best Actor. Days of Thunder, and next, he was, after that, was another quotable favorite of mine, A Few Good Men. Sadly for Tom, none netted him that coveted Oscar, but they all made him just an absurd amount of money, all of which went to the Church of Scientology. Elrond? Elrond! Cruz is always demurred when it, come, when it comes to cocktail, which makes sense when you think on it. The money he had from doing it probably got rid of a thetan or two. And when asked about it after the movie, he politely called it, quote, not a crowning jewel in my career. Now, cocktail wasn't without any major awards. It cleaned up at the ninth annual Golden Raspberry Awards in 1989. The Razzies, recognizing the worst in Hollywood, has to offer blessed cocktail with wins for worst picture and worst screenplay. And nominations for Worst Director and Worst Actor for Tom Cruise. Sadly, Tom lost that Razzie to Sylvester Stallone for 1988's dog turd of a movie, Rambo 3, the one where Rambo goes to Afghanistan and helps out a young Osama bin Laden. That's unfortunate. All in all, Cocktail was a mediocre movie that could have been a great movie if it was made by any other production house with any other star. Now, would it have been as profitable as it was? Oh, definitely not. But still, even what we got was a fun movie to watch, and like I said, it's a real inspiration to me personally. So why have I taken the last half hour to basically shit on a movie I actually kind of love? Well, there's one thing that I've obliquely referenced all throughout the show that earned a lot of hate at the time, and justifiably so. According to an article in Mental Floss, quote, three-time Oscar winner Maurice Jari, Lawrence of Arabia, was Cocktail's original composer, but the producers didn't think his score fit in with the story. So they called in J. Peter Robinson to fix it. Donald liked what Robinson did so much that he asked the composer to take over and do the rest of the work, unquote. And he did over the course of a single weekend, and it shows, because Cocktail gave unto the world not one, but two separate yet equally horrible songs that continue to haunt the broken psyche of our wounded nation decades after their infliction upon our innocent ears. The first, of course, was this vile abomination. <laughs> Now, this act of utter darkness was actually out in the world before Cocktail, but apparently Roger Donaldson was driving around one day and heard it on the radio and thought, you know what? It would be perfect for the movie. Years later, he would express regret for the choice, stating, quote, and suddenly it was everywhere. Sorry about that, unquote. What he has never expressed the slightest hint of remorse is the inclusion of this crime against humanity.
The song was written expressly for the movie, and it became the number one song of 1988. It was fucking everywhere. You could not go to sleep without hearing it in your nightmares. Mike Love of the Beach Boys was the principal composer and told songfacts.com in an interview, quote, here's what happened with Kokomo. The verses and the verse lyrics that was written by John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. He wrote, off the Florida Keys, there's a place called Kokomo. That's where we used to go to get away from it all. And I said, hold on. We used to go sounds like an old guy lamented his Miss Smith use. So I just changed the tense there. That's where you want to go to get away from it all. And so that was the verse, and it was lovely. But it didn't have such a groove. It didn't feel. So I came up with a part of Ruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take it. Bermuda, Bahamas. Come on, pretty marma. Kiago, Mentego. That's me, the chorus, and the words to the chorus. That was Mike Love. The verse was John Phillips, the bridge, where it goes, ooh, I want to take you down to Kokomo. We'll get there fast and take it slow. That's where you want to go, down to Kokomo. That's Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher produced the Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders. Very successful producer, unquote. Well, yeah, Mike, you know who else fucking Terry Melcher produced? And, of course, Charles Manson. Is the song vapid? Yes. Are the lyrics saccharine? Definitely. But do you know what irritates me most about Kokomo? To the best of my research and knowledge, there is only one place in the world with the name Kokomo. Aruba, Jamaica, Bermuda, Bahama, Key Largo, Montego. These are all places in the Caribbean. You know, what is fucking nowhere near the Caribbean? Kokomo fucking Indiana. You know what Kokomo is near? Indianapolis, which I don't know if you have ever been to Indianapolis, but it's not off the Florida Keys. And the closest thing to a beach in Kokomo is a fat guy in Hawaiian shirt drinking a Corona with a lime in it at the goddamn Applebee's. Dave, you okay? No, no, I'm definitely not. And I hate that song and do not get me started on hippie hippie shake. That is it for our show this week. This is one of those shows that has nothing to do with anything and has absolutely no greater meaning in the great wide world. You know, the theme of this podcast. I did feel a little weird doing another Tom Cruise movie so close to our show a few weeks back about Top Gun, but it isn't my fault that Xenu put all those evil thoughts in my head. One of these days I'm going to do a whole shit on Scientology series, but not soon. I mean... I've got this big Canadian tuxedo show coming up in a couple of weeks. Now, speaking of operating Thetans, you should rate and review this show wherever you get your podcast auditing sessions. It helps others find the show and not be all at all clear about why you suggested it. If you want to donate a buck towards my eventual bar ownership, you can do that at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. All the things that Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will pull up outside your house with a boombox over his head and play Wild Again by Jefferson Starship. And so for me, Dave, when I saw her, I burned my little black book, made a blind man take a second look Bledsoe, producer, doggerhide skirt, black stacked heels, red copper hair, dig the wig, it's unreal. Why? Gavin and all the fictional but fabulous Thunderbirds on this show, we want to say that charming star power and bright smile of Tom Cruise, it's powerful stuff. And we'll see you all next week.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Turk, for the last time, there is no place called Kokomo. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.